Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Excited to be here this morning as always. Uh, just a heads up, I wasn't going to say anything. Um, I've been having back spasms. It's like, don't say anything, just power through it. But if you see me wincing or leaning on this more than usual, just, you know, pray for me. That's your signal. See that my painful face, that's a signal that I, that I need prayer. And so this week, at some point during this week, in my excursion into YouTube and this, that rabbit hole that you can go down, as I always talk about, um, I, I saw a video of a brother of a Christian who I thought very much exemplified what we are going to study today. So I wanted to talk about this guy. I just, I just found out about him, sadly, um, our brother Shabazz Bati. And so Shabazz Bati, gifted, charismatic uh, politician in Pakistan, uh, worked for the prime minister of Pakistan. And his passion was religious freedom, and he fought hard in a land where Christians are persecuted, and he fought for religious freedom and, 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 and the oppression of Islam on the non-Islamic people. And there was a high-profile case that even made the news even in the States, and I remember Obama talking about it as well, the case of Asia Bibi, a woman who was sentenced to death because of um, blasphemy, you know, somebody said, oh, she committed blasphemy, and so she deserves to die. And he was one of the, the, the people who came forward and said, no, we're going to free her. Let's get rid of this. This is ridiculous that this would be the law. And so Shabazz faced many trials, including being a Christian, the only Christian, you know, in politics in Pakistan. In Pakistan, um, if you follow Open Doors Ministry, which tracks persecution all over the world, that's the fifth worst place you could be as a Christian. It is not good to be a Christian there. Praise God for our brothers and sisters there. Shabazz would be tempted over and over, as he said, people would beg him, people of Islam, his, his, his people around him, to convert, you know, because it's going to cost him his life. Not only is it going to cost him his life, but if he converts, all the fame and riches that would come from that, because he's a charismatic guy. He's very good. If he converts, he will be very rich and successful. The faith of Shabazz was always tested as well, right? And so during this trial of Asia, all the people who were working on her trial were one by one being executed. They were being murdered. And so this video I came across was actually him knowing, like, just telling people, I'm getting threats nonstop, just so you know, this is what I'm about. And in that video, he said this quote, I want to share that I believe in Jesus Christ, who has given his own life for us. I know what is the meaning of the cross, and I am following the cross. And on March 2nd, 2011, he was gunned down outside of his mother's house. Now, those who killed him may have thought that they won, that they succeeded, they got rid of their enemy, and that he may even be suffering in hell. But we know, according to, to James 1, that that's not the case, that, 
that this brother of ours who endured this trial and these temptations, and he, he not only endured it, but he passed through it, he became steadfast, he became tough, he never surrendered, never surrendered, and so we know that he is not suffering. We know that he has life. In fact, I believe Shabazz has or will receive the crown of life. The crown of life is eternal life. It is eternal life. Even better, bestowed by God himself, right? That crown of eternal life bestowed on him from God. And so like you, I think, what a wonderful brother to have. I want faith like him. I want to follow Jesus like Shabazz. How do I do that? Well, to do that, we have to think like he thought, and he thought with the end in mind. He didn't think in the moment of the trial, of the pain or suffering. He knew that through the trials and temptations that there was something at the end, that there was an award, there was a crown to look forward to for those who love Jesus. The truth is, at the end of our life, we will all see a crown. Now, for those of us who love Jesus, we're going to see several crowns. We're going to talk about one today, but we will see the crown of life, right? We'll see the crown of Jesus. But for those of us who don't know Jesus, who don't love Jesus and follow Jesus, we will see the crown as well, but it's going to be horrible because we will experience the wrath of the crown, which is not life, it is death. In our text today, it'll be our second sermon in James, and we're going to go through chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. Our sermon title today is Trials, Temptation, and Coronation. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good. I am so glad, Lord, excited that, uh, that one of the topics we're going to talk about today is your goodness, Lord, and the way you manifest your goodness through life's trials and that you create us and recreate us through the trials of life, even giving us joy, Lord. We have everything in Christ already, and yet you still promise us these things like crowns, Lord, which are amazing. But Lord, I ask that that would never be our motivation. How awesome that crown looks like, Lord, that our motivation would always be to serve your crown out of love for you with all of our heart, mind, and soul that we would love and worship and follow you. And whatever you give, give us, Lord, thank you so much. You've given us everything already. And so may you be with us, Lord, as there's a couple of verses in here which may even challenge us this morning, challenge the way we think about our lives and our, our possessions and resources, Lord. But you do this, Lord, out of love, Lord, and because it's true, may we be convicted of truth and follow you, Lord. And Lord, I also heard, Lord, of another pastor in town, uh, Roger, Lord, at Valley, who is suffering, who has uh, apparently terminal cancer, Lord. And we don't compete with churches, Lord. This is, the church is your bride. We are part of your bride. And so we come alongside everyone else who is praying for him, for his family, for his healing, for, for his peace and his comfort, Lord. Walk with him through this season, Lord. Give him joy. No matter what the end may be, Lord, it will be awesome, Lord. Please be in that situation, Lord. And we do and ask all these things to the glory of Jesus. Amen. So remember last week, church, James instructed us right off the gate to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. 
the goal of becoming steadfast or becoming tough, even perfect. This week, James, he's going to give us a practical example. You know, sometimes, you know, I was watching a sermon by Paul Washer last night, and he's like, sometimes we're too general. And we say these Christian things, and it's like, okay, that sounds right, but what does that mean? And so James is like one of those guys who answers the objections because he knows what you're thinking. And so he gives us these very practical instructions about, about what that means. <clears throat> so starting in verse 9, James writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And so what we find here is this paradox where the rich are poor and the poor are rich. And regardless of where you fall in that financial spectrum, God has something he wants to tell you today about it, about your situation. You see, both can be a trial, right? Both, both being poor and rich can be a trial. And so either way, this morning, God wants to shift your thinking just a little bit so that you can acknowledge it, so you can go through that trial, becoming tough, becoming steadfast, becoming perfect, to get to Jesus, to live with Jesus forever. And so let's look at each one, starting with the poor like James does. So James calls them lowly. These are lowly Jewish Christians who are poor because of their faith. Right? Well, why does he call them lowly? Well, because it's a lowly economic situation that they're in, which means what? The world views them as lowly. You know, we'd all be guilty of this. We know when we view somebody as being poor and lowly, and, and the result of that is then for them to view themselves as being lowly. Right? I mean, that, that's just the way this works. Yet James, even though he calls them lowly, does not consider this a disadvantage. He says this is an advantage like, boast in it. Boast in your lowliness. Boast of your exaltation. What is James talking about? How does that work, these kingdom dynamics? And so one important thing to understand, especially early on in the book of James, and that we come across it right off the bat here, is that James's arguments, what he's trying to do and explain to, to these people with this letter, his argument is mainly from the Sermon on the Mount. Everything he's saying is something that Jesus said. Now, he only mentions the name Jesus twice in this whole letter, but everything he says is based on something, either the law or the Sermon on the Mount. And so James wants us to be, uh, he wants us to be practical, for, for us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. James has this radical concept he has this radical concept, and he believes that people should not only say they believe in Jesus, but should act like they believe in Jesus and listen to what he says. So what did Jesus say about the poor and lowly? Well, a lot, but let's look at two verses. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And in Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, poor in spirit. I mean, that's just, they are, they are lowly. They don't think much of themselves. If you're rich, you, sometimes we tend to think because of what we have, it makes us better than, 
not, not the poor. There's nothing about them that, that walks around society and says, we are better than. No, they, they are lowly. They are poor of spirit. Everything about them is poor. This means there's less distractions. Right? There's less to get caught up with, distracted by. Now, it should be noted again that these, these Jewish Christians are poor because of their faith. They are not poor because they are lazy, because they don't want to work. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Christians who, this has cost them everything. Their faith has cost them everything, so their faith is all they have, right? And so in this lowly trial, James says, this is boastworthy. This is boastworthy. They are poor, yet they are rich. So what about the rich? James talks about them a lot. Unlike the trial of poverty, like this is the one we would vote for. If we had to be, choose between poor and rich, we want, we want to be rich. And this reminds me of a bumper sticker I haven't seen forever, but I'm older. But it, it used to say, God, let me prove to you winning the lottery won't spoil me. Yet in this paradoxical thinking, being rich is a spiritual disadvantage. And they need to be reminded of this. And if you, if you are well off this morning, if you are well off, if you are rich, this isn't to shame you, right? This is to save you. So you could have your riches now and be saved. That's the point of this, not shame. Don't be ashamed, be warned. Humble yourselves. Because the rules of the kingdom don't apply to the rules of this world. What's rich in the world isn't rich in the kingdom. The only currency they're going to accept at the gates of heaven is the blood of Christ. And James goes on and gives specific reasons for this warning to the rich in verses 10 and 11. He says, Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And so we find two sobering truths about riches here. And one is that we have people who are just storing up, who are obsessing on and storing up um, treasures on earth, which is futile because it, it's perishing. It, it's going away. It, it's not going to exist at some point. This whole system will be gone. It's expiring. And James is only echoing the words of his brother Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, where Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so Jesus and, and James are saying, your wealth will not last, <laughs> right? It is fleeting. It, it, it will rot. Your wealth will rot. And if you're not careful and if you're not humble, your soul will rot with it. And in these verses, I believe there's a very intentional contrast with Isaiah 48, where it says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And so which one should we reach out for and cling to? 
right? The one that's going to stand the test of time. So we should know God, know his word, serve God, right? Be wise, that is wisdom. And so what I want you to do now is I want to do an exercise with you. I want you to think about everything you own. Your possessions, your, your bank account, don't look it up, whatever you, you think is close, your assets, your cars, your house, uh, your vinyl collection, whatever it may be. Maybe that's just me. You know. But think about that. And I, wanna, I want you to imagine that in your left hand. Everything that has value to imagine in your left hand. And I want you to take your Bible in your right hand. All of your wealth and the word of God. Now, and this is what James is saying so far. Now, the person who's lowly, who's poor in their life, when things get weighed out, if you don't have much in that left hand, what happens? This, get, this carries so much more weight, and hence advantage, right? Exaltation, this is better. They have less, but man, does that make it easier for this to be the ultimate importance and I'm not just saying what kind of Bible you own. I'm saying that, 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 you have, that Christ is your possession, that you follow this, that, that you have a relationship with God, not that, that you just own a Bible. Now, it says that the things on the left side will perish, right? The things on the left side will perish. And so there's going to be a point where as this stuff perishes, this is going to be all that's left, and so today, to the rich, James isn't saying to get rid of your riches in, in order for this to become more important. He's saying when you measure these things, which one is more valuable to you? Which one is your treasure? Which one is your hope in? If your value and your treasure isn't in the word of God and the beauty and necessity of Jesus Christ, you are not only poor, you are doomed. It will all perish. So we could, we could put these down. Instead, we should seek humiliation, James says. Who seeks humiliation? Paul. Right? And so we look at a guy like Paul, had all sorts of money, well-off family, best Literally the best private education you could buy, had the titles, had the authority, had the praise, um, handpicked by Jesus. And what, what does Paul boast in? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He boasts in his weakness. He boasts in how weak he is. Why? Because th then he's able to focus on the weight of glory that he also talks about. That's what's important. There's nothing in Paul's life that is more important than this. He wants to be weak in order to be strong in Christ. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says he's the chief of sinners. And he believes it. I am the absolute worst, guys. He didn't have to say that. Like even back then, Paul was a rock star of the faith, right? He could have went anywhere and just said, hey, I'm Paul. Give me, you know, no. It's like, I'm a sinner. I'm weak. And so we must humble ourselves and submit ourselves and dedicate ourselves to the kingdom of God instead of clinging to riches, clinging to the word of God, clinging to Christ, and you will be rich. But it is difficult, 
right? That's what this is all about. <laughs> like, it's not easy. This is not a carnival. These are talking about trials. And trials are difficult because we must react to them. We must react to trials, and therefore we have temptations. We may consequently succumb to temptations. In verses 12 through 15, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Sounds like verse 2. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so God will not tempt us, cannot tempt us, but he will test us. Right? In our trials, we are being tested. And we will quickly find out what we believe and what we trust in. Now, the poor, again, don't have much choice. It's an advantage spiritually. They don't have much choice of what they can trust in. The rich do. Again, this is not to shame, this is to save. In these trials, in these tests, is when we're most apt to give in to temptation. Now, temptations for the poor include everything. Any and everything. You need some bread, you need a roof over your head, lie, cheat, steal, temptation everywhere. Including, unfortunately, the temptation to believe that, that God won't provide or that God won't love you or doesn't love you, right? There, there, there's a mixed signal, an incorrect signal in our culture that equates wealth with God's blessing, which James says here is nonsense. Temptations for the rich could be similar, just from the other side, where the rich, again, are tempted to not trust in the provision of God. Why? Because they can trust in the provision of themselves. They don't need God, so they think. And so how many people do we know that their life is great? Oh, it's so annoying. <laughs> right? I mean, they perfect clothes, car, house, family, can go wherever they want, do whatever they want, eat whatever they want. And hey, praise God. If that's you, praise God. Thank God for that stuff. Goodness, it's awesome. I'm not jealous at all. Um, <clears throat> but the truth of what James is saying here is that person, their, their priority is not seeking out God. That person does not wake up thinking about how holy he is or how he has to cling to Christ or how Christ is all he has. And I don't blame them, but again, that's the warning here. Riches are good, but not if it's going to block you from Christ. James will also mention, we'll come across this in a few weeks, that another temptation of the rich is to not share with your brothers and sisters. Even worse, you know, the people who are more well-off were business owners, and they were mistreating not, not only just their employees, which was wrong, but their brothers and sisters in Christ. They are mistreating them. That is not okay. Either way, James makes it clear, it is not God who tempts us. God is perfect. God is perfect, God is sinless, and God can't have anything to do with sin. 
has no part in your sin. You can't blame him for your sin. You see, this whole idea of blaming somebody else for everything that you've done wrong, it is not new to our culture. Now, mind you, I mean, let's take some credit. We have excelled at it, right? Oh, goodness, you know, with all the racism, sexism, patriarchy, parents, and oh, goodness, religion. We can blame everybody for everything wrong in our life. But it's not new. It goes back to Genesis 3.12, doesn't it? Where after sinning against God, Adam tells God what? The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The greatest gift Adam ever had, he just turns around and blames God like that was the issue. God, your grace and your love is the issue. You made me sin. And since the fall, humanity will find any excuse to not be accountable for our actions, even blaming God. And yet the reality is when we sin, if we want to find out who caused us to sin, we only need go as close as the nearest mirror. Let no one say, I am being tempted by God. It is nonsense. We tempt ourselves. James even gives us a diagram. He lays it all out, the anatomy of our sin in verses 14 and 15. Starting off, first off in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now it should be noted here, desire is not bad. You desire to be a better friend, uh, to be more holy, uh, to follow the word of the Lord more. Praise God, awesome desires. Desire is not a bad thing. We are talking about desires that lead to sin here. <clears throat> and so sinful desire, it starts in our mind. It starts in our mind. Somewhere in our mind, something breaks, something is disordered, something is not working, because at some point, something that we know is dangerous and deadly becomes okay. Right? There's a long process in there. And part of that for a lot of people today is blaming God. Well, Yes, this is a broken thought, but, you know, God created me this way. No. If you have a sinful desire, God did not create you that way. Sin is caused by our own desire and our own narrative put into action. In verse 15 it says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin is the action of desire. We create it. Like, we create it, we nurture it, and it says we give birth to it. Like, that's the image here. Like, we have no excuse. It was our creation that we nurtured and gave birth to. In verse 15, it says, Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so every aspect of our sin is, is a disordered desire that causes us to give birth to our death. That's what sin is. Us giving birth to our own death because of our own desire, because of our own hearts. And it is spiritual death, the rejection of God and the wrath of God against those who willfully chose to do so. James has said multiple times already. I've never preached with a mic, forgive me. Um, he said multiple times. There is a point to all of this. There is a reason that we are going through everything. There is a goal at the end of this. So don't give up in the trial. Don't be tempted 
right? Go through it with joy. Don't trust in the wrong thing. Instead, aim for God. Aim for the glory of God. And then James says there's this moment later on where we receive glory from God. We receive the crown of life. And so I want to go back to verse 12 where it says, Blessed is the man, this is the coronation, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life. That sounds so cool. Right? But what is it? Well, for starters, it's one of five heavenly crowns, including the imperishable crown, crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and the crown of life. Now, James doesn't give us too much details about this crown other than it's at the end of this trial that we're supposed to go through while counting it joy. But praise God, in Revelation 2, John, inspired by Jesus to write this letter to the church of Ephesus, in Revelation 2.10 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And so the crown of life is for those who have faithfully followed Jesus their entire lives. No matter the trial, even at this point, Jesus is saying it's going to cost some of them their very lives, but they don't give up and they receive this crown. And that's why I believe, you know, somebody like Shabazz has or will receive this crown of life. I mean, he's proclaiming Christ. He's filming videos saying, let everybody know I believe in Christ. Let, don't let them change the narrative about me. This is why I'm dying, because I understand the cross. And so that's why I mentioned him earlier. I believe that we will see him wearing a crown of life. The crown of life is for those who seek the glory of God and then obtain the glory of God. Because the best thing about it is that it is given by God. What does this crown look like? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it glows, if it's sparkly, glittery, if it hovers above our heads. It, maybe it's like garland leaves like the, the Romans would be awarded with. Maybe it's like that Burger King paper crown. <clears throat> it doesn't matter. The beauty of it is that the God of the universe is giving it to you. That your holy God is giving you a crown that says you get to be with me forever. That's the beauty of it. I don't care what it looks like. We get to be with the God who we love, which is awesome. And it's also important because it says here, and we can't miss it, this crown is for those who love him. A crown for those who love him at the end of verse 12. Which means if you are living the Christian life, maybe you're living a really good Christian life. You are just knocking out the commandments. I mean, everything if your motivation is love for yourself, if your motivation is self-preservation, nobody wants to go to hell. I get that. But if your motivation is just not to go to hell instead of love for God, you are not deceiving God. You are deceiving yourself. We must love God. God is the reward of those who love God. And so you may ask, a big question a lot of people ask, 
Why should I love God? Why should I love God? Because he is good. He is good. So often, too often, in fact, I talk to unbelievers who give reasons why they don't believe in God or follow God or come to church. And the thing they question is what? His goodness. If God was good, then why does God allow blank, insert whatever their their social thing is or whatever is important to them at that moment? And what they're saying, well, if God is good, then why isn't he like what I want him to be? Well, you answered your own question. Because God is good and you're not. James writes in verses 16 and 17, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so God's goodness, it's undeserved, it's unchanging, it's everlasting, right? There's no shadow in it. It's just perfect from every angle, perfect. He is perfectly good. It's in his goodness. I don't think we realize just the universe that we live in. Every star, life itself, everything is God's goodness, right? The goodness in, in just the, the, the common graces that we experience in our life, our family and food and laughter. And we've been through it. All those wonderful things that are common graces of God's goodness. Those things are because God is good. And then there's the ultimate potent form of God's goodness, which we find in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know from Paul, whenever he says the word of truth, he's talking about Jesus. And not just the person of Jesus, but the message of Jesus, the gospel. God has called us forth from the world. He's called us forth with the gospel. He has called us in Christ by his goodness, this good news, this good news that that we will receive this crown. And so this crown also reflects God's goodness because this crown was purchased with another crown, right? The crown that Jesus wore. In God's goodness, in God's goodness, Jesus wore the crown of thorns. He paid our sin debt of death so that we could have the crown of life. That is why you should love God. He is good. That is why you should come to Jesus. He's good enough to cover our bad with his blood. To recreate us in the trials and temptations of the life. To be more like Christ. In conclusion, in verse 18, we read, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's an unusual phrase. And what that means is when God created the universe, what did he say? This is good. This is good. And then, you know, man came along and, and by willful disobedience, by sin, just plunged the earth, humanity, into despair, depravity, and death, decay. Yet the good news is that those, call, those of us called by the will of God in the gospel, in Christ, it says here that this is the beginning of God recreating everything. 
We are proof, believe me, us, we, when people see us and, and, and see what Christ has made of us, we are a proof that God is recreating everything. We're the first fruits of getting back to everything being good again. It's a process created through trials. Trials that we go through with joy. Because we know the Jesus who wore the crown of thorns so that we could wear the crown of life. Let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.